0: also called, whom He called, these He also justified, and whom He justified, these He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. For Father, the greatest thing that we could ask of You is that You would communicate Yourself unto us. So Father, we pray that You would open up Your Word to us so that we may know it, but not as an end in and of itself, but that we may know Him who made atonement for us. It's in His name we pray. Amen. The subject assigned to me is redemption accomplished or sometimes considered in a more narrow uh, aspect as particular redemption or limited atonement. And many in our day reject this doctrine, and many in our day would question a group of churches like ours for spending an entire session to teach or preach on the doctrine of a redemption accomplished. And if it were only those who disagreed with us and felt that this view is heretical, we might dismiss that question out of hand. But it's not only those who disagree with us. There are many who accept that the Bible does teach a particular redemption, a definite atonement. And yet they would say things such as, what good could come from teaching such a controversial doctrine in the church? Does it have any place in the everyday life of a believer in the pew? Surely, this subject, redemption accomplished, particular redemption, should be limited to debates in academic circles or pastors' conferences, seminaries. But it has very little life in the place of the congregation. And with so many who feel this way, it would be foolish of us to dismiss that question out of hand. On the other hand, it would be very wise of us to step back for a moment and ask, why should an association of churches spend an entire session to look at this doctrine of an accomplished redemption, a particular redemption? Why should you teach this doctrine in your church? One of the main reasons we should be teaching this doctrine in our churches is that the people that you serve and the people that I serve are engaged in various struggles, various trials on a daily basis. And many of these trials have a debilitating effect upon their faith. They're paralyzed by the fear of condemnation, that they will be brought under condemnation. They're paralyzed by this fear. They're unable to grow or to advance in the Christian life because they're constantly having to come back to in an unhealthy and unhelpful way to this idea of acceptance with God. And you can probably see their faces in your minds even now as I speak. Some of them by this time ought to be teachers and yet they need again to be taught the first principles of the oracles of God. They have struggles that are common to all men. They have busy lives and stress and strain that comes with that busy life. They have family difficulties. Some of them are struggling to pay their bills while the wicked prosper. And they wonder, do these things imply that God is against me? That He's not for me? And then there are those struggles that are unique to the Christian life. They have wrestlings with the veracity of the Scriptures. They wrestle with indwelling sin that is in chapter 7 of Romans. I had a person in my living room just this past week who said that because of certain indwelling sins, that they lived in constant fear of condemnation. Broke down. I fear that God will condemn me for my sins. But then there are weaknesses in prayer. a Weakness in prayer that causes great struggles for, for the child of God. Does God hear my prayers? Will he answer my prayers? And then there are what Paul calls later in Romans 8 tribulations, distresses, and persecutions. All of which unsettle believers from time to time, shake them to their very core. All of these difficulties are faced by the people in the pews. And the question many of them ask are just what this person asked in my living room Will I be condemned? I know the golden chain of redemption. I know that those who are called will be glorified. But I have all these things against me. Sin dwelling in me. Rising up in me. I struggle with my prayer lives. Will these things not cause God to abandon me? Isn't He disgusted with me? And in answer to that question, the Apostle Paul turns them... And us, for we're not exempt from these trials. He turns all of us to an accomplished redemption, a redemption fully accomplished. If God is for us, he says, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Brother, can I get a drink of water? God is for us. Who can be against us? Now, we must not zip past this statement in the text. God is for us. Now, it's not a matter of of doubt if, if God is for us. God is for us. The Apostle is saying, we know that God is for us because despite our struggles with indwelling sin, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been given the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And though we have many present sufferings, there is a glory to be revealed in us. There is a glory to be revealed in us that all creation eagerly longs for eagerly waits for. And while we have major weaknesses in our prayer life, the Spirit of God Himself intercedes for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. And so Paul says, what shall we say to these things then, brothers? All this mass, this bulk of evidence that God is indeed for you, what shall we say to these things? Since we are able to see clearly then that God is for us, who can be against us? Now, this is a remarkable statement. God is for us. That is remarkable. God is for us. How is it then that God is able to be favorable towards us? How can God be for us? How can a holy, just, and righteous God a God that is too holy to even look upon sin, how can He be for us who are so simple, wicked, and by nature, children of wrath? You see, it's a remarkable statement. God is for us. You know the story of our creation. God created us upright in His own image and there in the garden... We had fellowship with God, free access to God, free communion to God. And Adam, by his fall, a great crime. Against all the goodness of God, he fell and he brought us into sin under condemnation. And that crime is made worse by the perfection and goodness of God to him in that creation. And fellowship was lost. How could there remain any fellowship between a holy God and a now corrupted individual? How could God fellowship with him? How could God be favorable to him? God must, of necessity, because of his nature, drive him away from the presence of God. Drive him out of the garden. And we have, by our fall, made ourselves... The enemies of God. In Adam, we have all become the enemies of God. And God has become our enemy as well. God is angry with sin and His wrath must be satisfied. There's no lessening of the standards. His wrath must be satisfied. It is God's nature to burn hot against sin. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 15 for just a moment. We see it here in Exodus 15 in the song of Moses after the destruction of Egypt. He says of God in the midst of His song, He says, and in the greatness of Your excellence, that is because of who You are, You have overthrown those who rose up against You. You sent forth Your wrath and consumed them. Like stubble. You see, Moses recognizes that the Egyptians were destroyed because it was God's nature to rise up and destroy those who come against him. And brothers, we are no different than Pharaoh. In Adam, we rose up against God. And every day we rise up against God. And in our very nature, we have become the children of wrath. And it's not as if there's just some disagreement between us and God. And it's really not even anymore as if there's just some sin between us and God that we can be removed and as if we were neutral parties any longer. But our sin has ruined us in our very beings, in our core, who we are. Our nature is now at enmity with God. It says one writer said, he said, two sheep may disagree in the pasture and so fight. And become enemies he said but they will never be enemies in the way that the sheep and the wolf are their natures are diametrically opposed we are in all in every fiber of our being opposed to God by nature so how then can man with a corrupt nature who is And God, who is perfect, be reconciled. In other words, how can God be for us? How can the apostle come here and say, God is for us? Now, this is the great dilemma. How can the wrath and the love and mercy of God exist side by side and be satisfied? And both be satisfied. This is, humanly speaking, from our finite wisdom, this is the great dilemma. We've heard, God had a purpose from all eternity to elect us, to save us, to sanctify us. And there's this sin. How then is God to remain just? And at the same time, the justifier of the ungodly. God is and must remain just. How then is He to justify us? How is He to be for us? It is through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood. God in His infinite wisdom made a way for the full weight of His wrath, all of His justice, to come down upon sin, to condemn sin in the flesh, and so be merciful to sinners at the same time. This is the wisdom of God. This is the wisdom, the infinite wisdom of God. He made a propitiatory sacrifice. He made a sacrifice for us that turns all the wrath, the full weight of God's anger, away from those whom He had chosen. And His wrath is satisfied fully, completely. And at the same time, He is able to be merciful to us. And He accomplished this propitiation, this reconciliation between ungodly sinners and Himself by delivering up His Son for us all. Look at verse 32. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. What is meant by that phrase? He delivered Him up for us all. When the time came that the justice of God should be satisfied in the fullness of time and after much long suffering, God formed a body for the eternally begotten Son. And it was in this body, in the likeness of sinful flesh, that God sent, He delivered His Son on account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. God the Father delivered the Son to be punished for sin he sent him and he formed him a body and he sent him in order to punish him this is the meaning of the term he spared him not he who did not spare his own son turn with me to romans chapter 11 We see this phrase, He spared them not, in Romans eleven twenty one, speaking of the natural branches of the Jewish nation. He says, For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. And the point here is, He did not spare them from the punishment that was due to them. God did not spare them. He did not save them from the punishment. And that is the phrase used of Christ. He did not spare His only Son. It's used again as well in 2 Peter of the fallen angels. God did not spare them from punishment. And then it's used in 2 Peter as well of the ancient world before Noah. He did not spare them. He came down upon that ancient world, upon all the fallen angels, with the full weight of His wrath. He spared them not. And He spared not His only Son, but delivered Him for us all. Christ was sent into the world and delivered over in a judicial sense to receive the punishment that was ours to bear. The Father sent Him as an atoning sacrifice, as a sin offering to bear the weight of His wrath in our place. Now, this death of Christ means absolutely nothing apart from His life of obedience. And this life of obedience is assumed here in Romans 8. He's already addressed it in Romans 5. It is uh, uh, crucial to the accomplishment of our redemption. His sacrificial death means nothing if He is not perfect. Nothing if He has not fulfilled all righteousness. It is His obedience is the meritorious cause of our justification, of our being able to stand in the presence of Almighty God. And having lived that life, having been like the sacrificial lamb at Passover who was put up for four days in order to determine whether it had blemishes or not, Christ lived a a period of probation on this earth and He was found to be without blemish. He says at one point that Satan is coming, but he has nothing in me. Nothing in me. I am without blemish. And having lived without blemish, having secured and accomplished all righteousness for us, he came as a sin offering. The Father delivered him up, he spared him not. He says in the text, He did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. When Paul says that He was delivered for us, that He was delivered for us all, it must be noted that he's not speaking here in terms of an example. He didn't deliver Christ up for an example to us of sacrificial living. The Bible does make that application. Certainly, the Sacrifice of Christ is an example to us. But when He says here in Romans 8 that He delivered Him up for us all, He does not have in mind as an example for us. What is meant here is that Christ was delivered in our place, for us, in our stead, where we belong to be. His sacrifice was vicarious. It was substitutionary in nature. He stood in our place. He came for us in our stead. Isaiah 53, the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. He's in our place. He shall bear their iniquities. He's in our place. He bore the sins of many. It's more than a mere example. And it's more than just a display of God's displeasure against sin. It was as a substitute, as our surety that He died. He died bearing our sins. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16, you have the the passage of the scapegoat. He says, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat. I'm in verse 21. Confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them, that is their sins, on the head of the scapegoat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land. This is the idea here. Behind the atonement of Christ. The Father has laid on his head all of our sins in our place. He sent him outside the camp and he killed him there. He sacrificed him there, bearing our iniquities, just as the scapegoat stood in the place of Israel so that they would not suffer punishment. So Christ was delivered for us as our scapegoat. He's in our place. These sins are placed ceremonially ceremonially upon the goat. And as Isaiah says, the Father has laid on Him our sins. They're upon His head. And He bears the full weight of them. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And so it is a remarkable statement. God is for us because He spared not His own Son but He delivered Him up for you and for me. In our place He stood. And what was accomplished by the substitutionary atonement? What was achieved? We've said that He made propitiation. He reconciled us. It's important that we ask that question. What did He accomplish? Did He make salvation possible? Did He make it so that God could be favorable to us if we met some lesser demands? Has the the law been lowered a notch that we might meet certain demands and therefore God is enabled to be for us? And the answer, of course, is no. That is not propitiation. That is not reconciliation. God did not make it possible For us to be saved. And if we move in this. This most important part. The part that actually secures our redemption. If we move it from the objective work of Christ. To the subjective act of faith. At it's most crucial point we have become man centered. And we've robbed Christ of his glory. Christ stood in our place. This work was accomplished. It is an objective fact. It had reference to God. God has been reconciled. What did Christ accomplish? He accomplished our reconciliation. He made God to be for us. Now, I'm not implying here that He made it possible for God to love us. God loved and elected and therefore He sent. What He made possible, was that God's justice should be satisfied, and mercy should be saved. And So it's not the idea of possibility. He didn't achieve for us lower standards. No, the whole tenor of Romans 8 is one, not of possibility, but of a triumphant certainty. Paul is certain that all these Christians who are wrestling in chapter 7 with indwelling sin, who in chapter 8 struggle with present sufferings, who have weaknesses in their prayer life, those whose faith may be shaken to the core, these Christians who are killed all day long, counted as sheep for the slaughter, suffering trials, tribulations, distress, and persecutions, Paul says it is a certainty You will triumph. You will overcome. Because Christ has accomplished your redemption. All of these things may be against you. But who can be against you if God is for you? Paul can say to those in the midst of these great trials, Who shall condemn you? Who shall separate you from His love? But we're more than conquerors through Him who loved us. None of these things shall be able to separate you from the love of Christ. For Christ has died and He has accomplished it. Paul's point to the struggling believer is this. You shall not be separated from the love of God. You shall never be condemned because an atonement has been made. It has been accepted. It has been received. It is effectual. And in doing so, He has secured and obtained for you every spiritual blessing necessary to our final salvation. He says, He who delivered up His own Son, how how shall He not with Him freely give us all things? These believers who are shaken, who you deal with on a daily and weekly basis, who are shaken in their faith, Shaken to the core by tribulations and trials and difficulties. These believers that Paul is addressing, they have this question that he answers. Will I be condemned? Who is he who condemns? Will I be condemned? My faith is weak. My prayers are unheard. All of this sin wells up within me. And Paul says, if he has given you the greatest of gifts, Will He not give you everything else necessary for salvation? Is faith necessary for salvation? Christ has it in His possession. Is repentance needed for salvation? Christ has it. And in Christ, all of these are yours. Now, many of the commentators that I read went out of their way to make the point that these all things here have reference not only to spiritual things, but to material things, material possessions. But I think in the passage, we must limit it to spiritual things. He's speaking to people who, he says here, have nakedness, peril, sore, famine, persecution. These people aren't concerned if they have clothing and housing. They're concerned with this great question. Will I be condemned in light of my struggles? In light of my weaknesses? Will I be condemned? And Paul says, no. You have all that is necessary for salvation. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ as we heard earlier. Second Peter tells us his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Christ has obtained redemption for us. He earned it. He merited it for us. Therefore, our salvation is secure. As Christ earns these things, He holds them in His possession. And as the mediator of the new covenant, He gifts them to us. What do you need that Christ doesn't gift to you? What do you need to be outside of the condemnation and wrath of God that Christ doesn't hold in His possession? and having stood in your place, and having served as the mediator of the new covenant, He does not give that to you. He has it all. It's His. Romans 9 says this, But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. The work is done. Redemption is accomplished. No part of it is left over for you. Is your faith weak? It's not a part of your redemption for you to build up your strong faith. Christ has obtained redemption. He holds all these things in His possession. Christ has accomplished it for all who were given to Him. And shall one of them be lost? Shall He fail having succeeded as an atoning sacrifice? Shall He then fail as the mediator to give those to all who were given to Him? they most certainly will not be lost. For the writer of the Hebrews goes on to say that if the blood of bulls and goats brought about a ceremonial cleansing, how much more then the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. If blood of bulls and goats could ceremonially clean the people, how much more the blood of Christ clean you and make you able to stand. Here's the point. The Father delivered up the Son for us all. And by doing so, He earned eternal redemption for us. And now, God will with Him most certainly freely give us all that is necessary for life and godliness. Despite our difficulties. Despite our failings. Despite our weaknesses. Don't you feel sometimes that you're lacking in what is necessary? Sin overwhelms you? Weaknesses in prayers? But God will free you. If God gave the greatest, will He not give you everything else necessary? We could sum it up this way, what Christ has accomplished this way in the context of Romans 8. He secured every spiritual blessing needful for life and salvation. Justification. For who shall bring it any charge Against God's elect. Non-condemnation. For who is He who condemns? Perseverance. For who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And a fate that overcomes the world. For in all of our difficulties, we're more than conquerors. All things work together for the good of those who love Christ. And so in this text, Paul addressing struggling, suffering believers says there is a triumphant certainty to your salvation. Redemption is accomplished. It is complete. And yet Paul goes on to add yet another reason for this certainty. And that is the resurrection, the session at the right hand of the Father, and and His intercession for us. Having accomplished redemption and merited every blessing needed for us, Christ secures their application to us by His intercession. I won't go too much into this because I know it's the next session, but I do want to tie this intercession into the atonement, to what Christ has done for us. These things cannot be separated. What does the apostle say in verse thirty-four? It is Christ. It is Christ who died, and furthermore is risen, is at the right hand of the Father and makes intercession for us. Paul can't separate them. He can't make the distinction. He died. Furthermore, almost as if He says even more importantly, He's risen. And He makes intercession for us. Hebrews 7, chapter 7 says, He's able to save to the uttermost all who come to Him since He ever lives to make intercession for them. The reason in Hebrews 7 given for His ability to save to the uttermost is His intercession. But we got to ask ourselves this question. Why is his intercession so effective? Why does he prevail with the Father? And in the last part of verse 28 in Romans and Hebrews 7, he says this. He offered up himself. You see his intercessory work is tied in to his atoning work. He prevails with the Father in prayer because He pleased the merit of His death. He pleased the merit of His life. He doesn't go to God and and beg and plead and and hope that God will be merciful to him and give him what He asked for. He has fulfilled the demands of the covenant. He has fulfilled all righteousness. He has met the punishment of the covenant. He's laid down His life in sacrifice. And now in the presence of the Father, He pleads it on behalf of all those given to Him. I have been offered up. Give me my inheritance. And God does it. God the Father does it. You ever feel like the people Paul was addressing in Romans 8? You ever have struggles and trials in the ministry? I know that you do. You ever feel like these difficulties are at times more than you can bear, that you've had failures? The people in the pews feel the same way. They fail as husbands, they fail as wives, they fail in their prayer life. Sin rises up within them. Satan constantly seeks to convince them. Will you be saved? Will you be saved? Look at your sins. But Christ has not failed in his ministry. You see, the work of redemption was not ours to accomplish in the first place. Yes, we failed. Yes, the people in the pews failed. But it wasn't ours to accomplish. Christ has accomplished it. There is no weakness in His prayers. He pleads His merit of perfect righteousness. He is the Son perfected forever, and He offered up Himself once for all, and now He lives to make intercession for the saints. He has accomplished all that we lacked. All your struggles, all your weaknesses, all your failings cannot separate you from the love of Christ because you are not accomplishing redemption. Now Paul's purpose is to comfort these struggling believers. And by the atonement, he has achieved our comfort. He has given us this certainty. But I want to say a word here about the extent of this atonement. If we hold to and teach a universal atonement, we wipe out every ground upon which Paul is seeking to base this comfort for believers. He asked the question, who is he who condemns? It's a rhetorical question. Who is he who condemns? Christ has died. Now, if we force upon this text a universal atonement, that is no comfort at all for anyone. Because the sinner could respond God may condemn me For many for whom he died are condemned There's no comfort in that, is there? Who is he who condemns? The answer is no one Christ has died If we say that Christ died for all men indiscriminately There is no comfort in that statement Zero comfort in that statement And all of Paul's argument is thrown to the ground But we may not, we cannot force a universal atonement on this text. This text teaches plainly and clearly a limited or a particular redemption. Now, the opponents of this doctrine would say at this point, many of them, that we have developed a system of theology. And that we have at this point come to the place where Scripture is silent and we've allowed our logic to push us forward in a way that Scripture does not speak they say that it is just a necessary consequence of our system of theology and i do agree that it is logical it is consistent with all that paul has said up to this point it is consistent with the hope that he offers to these believers that this atonement this definite atonement is effectual and it works for all those for whom it was intended After all, if we hold to a definite atonement that is effectual, we must either say that all for whom He died are saved, or either we must limit it to some extent. But I cannot agree, I will not agree, that it is not found in Scripture. It is found in this text. He says that He delivered Him up for us all. Who is the us all of the passage? For whom did Christ die? We can back all the way up to verse 28. Those who love God. Those who are the called according to His purpose in election. Those whom the Father foreknew and predestined. These many brethren that Christ has. They are the ones for whom He made atonement. It is in verse 33. God's elect. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The us all of this passage for whom Christ was delivered up must be the same as those for whom He pleads. He pleads for those whom He merited salvation for. And we know from John 17 that that is not the world, but those whom the Father gave to Him. After all, in this passage at least, it's the intention of the Father that comes to the forefront. He who did not spare His own Son, but He, that is, God the Father, delivered Him. What was the purpose? What was the extent to which the Father delivered the Son? We have to say, it is for all those whom He had purposed in election, called according to His purpose. So then, it is not an ineffectual and indiscriminate atonement that offers comfort and hope, but an effectual and accomplished atonement. That is the only hope for struggling, persecuted, distressed, downcast sinners. That is the only atonement that offers hope and comfort. And this is not just a doctrine to be debated around in pastors, fraternals, and seminaries. It has real application in the everyday life of the believer. It has real application as you counsel your members on a one-on-one situation. Anything less than a definite and effectual atonement. And we will leave our people like Luther, who, seeking salvation, climbed the pilot stairs, kissing each step on the way up. And as he reached the top, all that he could say was, Who can tell if it is so? Is that how we want to leave our people, brother? Who can tell if it is so? Brothers, we have much more to offer than that. Much more to offer. We don't offer the promise of the possibility of life. We offer life itself. In Christ, all shall be made alive. It is a redemption accomplished for us. Let's pray. Father, with sincere hearts, with sincere hearts, we thank You that in Your infinite wisdom You made a way to be for us, that You accomplished all righteousness in Christ Jesus. That we are not left in doubt, but we have this triumphant hope Said in Romans 5, a hope that does not disappoint. Father, we give you praise and glory for your accomplished redemption. In Jesus' name.